Welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Anirudh Singh. Our guest today is Amaya Scarity, partner at QED. Amaya joined QED in 2017, focusing on supporting the portfolio and finding new investment opportunities with a focus on back office technologies and infrastructure companies. Amaya brings a deep background in financial markets, compliance, and reg tech to the QED team. Earlier in his career, Amaya served as a president's nominee and as acting assistant secretary for financial institutions at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. In that role, he was the lead advisor to the Secretary on Policies Affecting Financial Institutions. He also oversaw a number of programs focused on supporting small business lending and community development. Prior to Treasury, Amias was management consultant at Oliver Wyman. Amias is a recipient of the Alexander Hamilton Award, the Treasury's highest honor. In today's episode, we discuss QED's success, the executive order on cryptocurrencies, QED's investments into Tint, Atomic, and Entropy, and much more. Hope you enjoy the show. Amias, uh, great to have you uh, here with me today. It's actually my first in-person recording, so it's very exciting stuff. Very exciting for me, too. Nice. I think you're here for the Cypher Accelerator, is that right? That's right. So we are relatively new to crypto investing, but uh, I had an opportunity. Sarah Hammer, who runs the Cypher Accelerator, and I work together at Treasury, and so she asked me to uh, join as one of the senior advisors, and I jumped at the opportunity, and it's exciting to be in person. So I'm actually going to talk to students yeah. uh, face-to-face. Yeah. Um, it's great having you here. And Sarah's great. She's a, she's a big supporter of the show as well. So glad you guys are doing that. Um, I know we had you on the show a couple of years ago, um, but for people who might not know or didn't get to listen to that one, if you could just quickly describe your career to date and uh, talk about how you became involved in fintech. Sure. So I'm a partner at QED Investors. We're a global a fintech venture capital firm. Before this, I spent eight years at the U.S. Treasury Department. So I was one of about 20 or so political appointees who joined the first day of the Obama administration. And I was one of two who was there on the last day at the Treasury Department. So uh, I had, had a great run there. Before that, I was a consultant, Oliver Wyman. And then earlier in my career, I did a, a bunch of uh, interesting things. Right out of school, I worked for Save the Children. I worked for the John Kerry campaign, and I helped Gene Sperling, who's now back in the White House, write a book on policy. So uh, lots of different things along along the way. Yeah. So you were with us, I think, late 2019, uh, about two and a half years ago. And QED has done incredibly well since then, I think raised over a billion dollars. That's right. Uh, would just love to hear a little bit about, about that journey, what that's been like, and, and why you think what you think has made QED so successful in the space? Well, I think the last two and a half years in fintech have been pretty exciting for a lot of people. And so the first thing I would say is that we feel very lucky to be on this ride. It's certainly true generally about QED. QED was started by our founders, Nigel Morris, Caribou Haneg, and Frank Rotman. Two of them are, are still running the firm. And they started it after careers at Capital One, where Nigel is one of the co-founders. Frank was the first ever chief credit officer. And they started thinking about what became known as fintech in 2007, 2008. So it turns out that was a very auspicious time to start investing in fintech. And we've been really lucky to ride the roller coaster along the way. Um, and certainly, I think if I look at my career and from the last two and a half years, you know, in 2019, No one was thinking that we were about to have a global pandemic, first of all. And second of all, no one, I think, would have said that a global pandemic would have been the best thing that ever happened to fintech. So it's been it's been really wild 
but we've been the beneficiaries of a lot of luck and a lot of hard work by our founders. Um, and we've been trying as hard as we can to help them along the way. I think right now we're living through some of the uncertainty coming after two real boom years mm-hmm. in fintech, and uh, we're trying to navigate those waters. Yeah, just just on that last point about navigating uncertain waters, you and I were t- chatting a little bit before the the recording about how how much time founders need to spend on on fundraising and how that landscape has kind of shifted from the start of 2020 to now. Do you mind just like restating that a little bit? Yeah, I think there's a any negotiation is a question of power dynamics. And one of the things that I always think about for my career, and it's actually, I'll put it in sort of advice for uh, young people uh, terms, but I think it counts for founders and investors as well, is when I was running recruiting for Oliver Wyman. So I was you know one of the junior people and I ran the Harvard recruiting process. And the recruiting process also has this roller coaster push-pull of power. First, you're the firm. You're trying to get everyone to apply. Then the students apply. So they're desperate to give you to have you give them a, an offer. Then the students get the offer, and the firm is once again desperate to have them come. And then the last thing is they show up, and they're the most junior person at the firm. And if you think about that roller coaster, um, many people play that incorrectly. The proper way to play it is through the cycle, right? I'm starting as a person who's excited. I'm ending as a person who's going to be both junior and still hopefully very excited. And I think what you can see in these uh, market gyrations is also opportunities for um, pretty mature founders, irrespective of age, to play that cycle really well. Uh, Understand that fundraising at its best is about capital and partnership. And you can see founders, you know, who play it the other way and really push it to the hilt in one zone. But, you know, it might be that a year later they're short on cash and they haven't hit their metrics and that can come back to bite in terms of the quality of the relationships that you have. So that, I think, is what we try to do. It's it's really hard because we have to remind ourselves from the founder's perspective, their job is to wake up and get as much money as they can to fund the company as quickly as they can. And that can squeeze out some of this soft stuff around partnership and relationship building. Yeah, that is some astute advice. Uh, I want to switch now a little bit to current events, and I think you're a, a unique perspective for this next question. Um, so about a week ago, President Biden uh, signed an executive order for the government to look at the risks and potential benefits of cryptocurrencies. You mentioned working for the U.S. Treasury and for the Obama administration. Uh, would love to get your thoughts on the implications of this order. Sure. The first thing I would say is remember that inside of the government, this is a long bureaucratic process. So one thing that I like to focus on when I read these orders is what agencies, what individuals, what people get named in which paragraphs. And not because there's any particularly large implications for that, but just because it it can remind you that in every single one of those paragraphs, there was an interagency negotiation where staffers, both mid-level and senior level, were arguing for the naming of their agency or their part of the agency in, in that in that paragraph to be part of what is, I think, a very exciting and, from a policy perspective, daunting um, challenge. From there, I think the, the way to think about this executive order is that it is less a statement of policy and more a statement about attention and intention. And so if you actually were to number out the things that the executive order requires to be done by the government, the real 
implication of this is a lot of reports are going to be written. And that isn't necessarily a criticism because that's the way the executive branch executes uh, its policies. You do have to actually say, okay, we need to understand this issue. We live in a democracy and we're lucky to do so, which means that if we're going to take a policy action, agency action needs public comment, right? Which often means that it needs research with public comment, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So I think those are the, the proper way to understand this, I think, is mostly about intention and attention, which is the federal government saying we need to be focused and we need to be coordinated. Now, within that, the theme that I was most interested in, in terms of reading the tea leaves, was the, I thought, more emphasis than you might have expected on a central bank digital currency. And within that, I think that what you can see is a very clear recognition that the need to have fully digital, 24-7, and global payment rails is an important functional need that stablecoins are serving parts of the market that traditional bank rails are having trouble serving. Mm-hmm. Now, the executive order doesn't state that. So it leaves open some really interesting questions about how the executive order or how a central bank digital currency could actually meet those functional demands. And also, I think it leaves open very interesting questions about whether parts of the regulatory apparatus are going to need to change in order to meet those demands. And the simplest one there is just the Electronic Funds Transfer Act, which says that if a mistake happens when you do an electronic transfer of money, fundamentally the bank is on the hook. Mm -hmm. And that is not true for stablecoins today, Mm -hmm. which raises some really interesting questions about the tension between the functional uh, promise and the consumer protection that we as people who live in America, have come to expect when we moved it money digitally. Mm-hmm. Did you foresee it all uh, in, say, 2012, towards the end of your time with the Obama administration, that something like this uh, would actually become a government focus? Or was that kind of a long shot back then? No. Uh, well, I should say, yes, absolutely. So I spent an amazingly large amount of time talking about Bitcoin in 20. 13 in particular. I don't know how much time I spent on 2012 because, um, but by 2013 and 14, I was spending a lot of time talking about Bitcoin. I actually was functionally the person who explained Bitcoin to Jack Lou, who was then treasury secretary. And I remember having a, a back and forth with him where I was trying to explain the consensus mechanism. And I said, well, the computers vote. And Jack very astutely said, well, am I Computers don't have free will. They can't vote. <laughs> I said, well, you know, they, they vote with their math equations. And he was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. You can't vote with math equations. So um, to, to give you a feel, I was uh, the government was pretty focused on this from the beginning. I think that if you had asked me that, I would have been skeptical that it would have been as important today as it, as it has been. But as a, as a matter of government attention, it felt like something that was really interesting and uh, always had this kind of buzz of excitement and clever programming combined with quite broad ambitions that felt like it was not going to go away. Mm-hmm. That's a really funny story. I don't, definitely don't envy your uh, position having to explain Bitcoin. In <laughs> well, the longest yeah. chain becomes, the cha- you know, <laughs> there could be, there could be a fork, but we don't need to get into that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Um, okay, let's switch a little bit now to QED. Yeah. Um, and maybe start on a lighter topic, a, a, a fun topic. Uh, I know the team has recently launched a FinTech Thought Leaders podcast. Uh, you've had a couple episodes come out. Uh, you were on the second one. Yeah. How's that going? I, you're a pretty big fan of podcasts. I'm a huge fan of podcasts. So I, I listen to podcasts at 2 plus X. Yep. I listen to them while I work out. I listen to them when I, when I wash the dishes. So I, I, I'm a huge fan of podcasting and uh, really excited that, that we decided to get into the uh, VC podcasting game. I mean, we're definitely dipping our toes in the water, but we think it's just a great opportunity to showcase voices. You know, we all write blogs, you know, why I invested in blank, why I'm excited about blank. And I think uh, a podcast is a really fun forum for that. Personally, I like talking better than I like writing. And so it's a great opportunity uh, for us and I think for our CEOs to let their voices uh, get heard in a, in a pretty open way. And not everyone has the platform that you guys do, but uh, but we're, we're trying to, to follow in your footsteps. I, I am sure you will uh, you will build it up quickly. <laughs> I have no doubt about that. Um, and it's it's a great way to get to meet people that you wouldn't otherwise get to meet, such as this That's conversation right. and, That's and right. kind of be a connecting point between people that wouldn't otherwise be connected. So i um, excited for you there. One of my favorite things to do when I get a VC on the show is to talk about a few of their uh, different investments and kind of talk, you know, those blog posts that you mentioned is why did you make this investment? Yeah. How did you build the conviction? Uh, so if you don't mind, I've got three in mind that we Great. could uh, run through right now. Can we start with Tint, the embedded insurance product provider? I think you invested in uh, February of this year. Yeah, that's right. So we are really excited about the idea of infrastructure. When I started at QED in 2017, I thought it was the boring stuff. And I used to say to folks, you know, well, I'm interested in the stuff that doesn't have a buzzy, you know, a, a user interface or anything like that. I'm interested in the boring stuff. I'm interested in the plumbing. Uh, you know, that was at a time when I could not have expected that Plaid would become a $15 billion company. So, um, so we're excited there. And, and I've kind of really tried to just press that idea really hard. I wrote a series of essays with your own uh, Nate Sofio last year. And I think that the role of APIs as a user interface is really interesting because of companies that are built that way tend to be designed to unlock other people's innovation. And as QED, as investors, you know, the truth is fintech's gotten a lot more competitive in the last 10 years. And in large part, it's because the playbook has been written. The playbook has been written so effectively, there are now companies where the playbook is encoded into an API. So the best that we can do, or I can do, and I've tried to do, is invest into those companies that are encoding the playbook. And with Tint, I was particularly excited because they weren't only embedding insurance in other financial services, but they were embedding insurance into other types of innovative consumer products, other types of innovative consumer promises. And so, for example, Tint is powering the embedded guarantee for Deal. And Deal is powering the idea of remote hiring for U.S. startups globally. So those are the kinds of chains of innovation which I think can unlock really explosive growth. And of course, uh, Mateus, the team, was a solve-your-own-problem founder, right? He had built the insurance function, function for Toro, and he realized that the number of companies that were going to need a product like this far outstripped the capability of every given marketplace to build 
an in-house insurance function and he wanted to make that easy. And so we just fell in love with the idea, fell in love with the idea of chains of innovation leading to um, really huge upside and the idea ultimately that this could be a digital Lloyd's of London. And uh, Lloyd's writes $50 billion worth of premium every year. So we thought that was a, a big enough target to shoot yeah. at. Yeah. I like the phrase, solve your own problem founder. Uh, I, I never put it that succinctly, but it's always cool to meet people that maybe were working on an earlier startup. Uh, whether that was successful or, or not is irrelevant. But during that time, uh, ran into an issue and decided to solve that uh, later on. Yeah, that's right. And the solve your own problem, it's, it's great advice. It doesn't necessarily lead to a, lead to a big TAM. But if you can, um, you have sufficient passion. And Mateus and Jerome are a great example of founders who, you know, it was not, oh, we started it and then we're in YC six weeks later and then we raised our seed and then we raised our A and now we're off to the races, right? They actually spent a lot of time figuring out what it would take to build this. And I think that's the kind of passion that the solve your own problem founder has and some other founders uh, won't always have. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as we discussed, this is this is a roller coaster uh, game. You know, we're lucky that our durations are very long, so we get to ride the roller coaster mostly to the end. But uh, I like to remind my founders, in almost any job, someone else would do it if you didn't. And when you're founding a company, that's not true, which makes it the hardest job in the world, way harder than than what I could do. Uh, or, you know, whether, you know, what I did at Treasury or what I do at QED is not nearly as hard as being a founder. <laughs> Want to switch now to Atomic, uh, the investing as a service platform. Uh, you guys invested in it, I think, late last year. Yeah, that's right. So again, similar themes, right? How do we take the idea of lots of innovative consumer-facing financial services and make it easier for the founders who have this idea about serving the consumer to take care of the plumbing by themselves. And one of the really interesting things about Atomic, there are other companies that are out there that have made this kind of investing as a service or investing infrastructure play. But Atomic went a step further and they actually became a registered investment advisor, which means that they can unlock consumer investing experiences beyond simply allowing you to buy an ETF or allowing you to buy a single name stock. And, you know, I might be a sucker for consumer protection, but I really do think that there are the right way to invest in the long term is probably not day trading. Mm -hmm. And what's cool about atomic structure is that they can, they can actually do both. Right. And so they have a lot of customers that are coming in, getting kind of an atomic built basket, but then also buying Tesla and Apple and Facebook or buying Tesla and, you know, another company that they really like. And so they combine the ability to have this, um, you know, the best kind of diversified investing along with the kind of engagement that you get uh, by buying and selling single name stocks. So that part we just thought it was such an exciting opportunity, and we'll come back to this in a minute, but I think that the next generation of consumer fintech is going to be the question of whether the big winners from the last wave, these big consumer neobanks, can really become the banking brands of the future, can become the financial supermarkets that they want to become. And I think that was going to rely on companies like Atomic serving and enabling really high-class financial services options inside of brands that have already captured the consumer's attention. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Last company I wanted to chat about today was Entropy. 
the enterprise software for data categorization? That's right. So I met Entropy when they were, you know, two people and a couple of PhD interns. And they had this really big idea around privacy protective machine learning. And just the idea that you could combine those two kind of blew my mind. I was like, wait, how do you do? I thought machine learning, you needed all the data and privacy protection, you need to hide all the data. How does this work? So really brilliant founders. And what we have seen is similarly, in order to build a really valuable user experience, you need clean data, right? So if I want to show you the logo of the transaction that you just swiped on an hour ago, you need to hit an eight, you know, you need to surf the web, pull that logo in, make sure it's clean and deliver it. And that actually is a terrifically difficult machine learning problem to do in, you know, dozens of milliseconds. Um, but then on top of that, if you want to really add value, so there's this kind of just give, give me something that looks fresh and clean. But then there's the question of like, there's so many fintechs that we see that are offering really interesting things around points and rewards, automating tax filing, automating underwriting. And all of those features are built on top of data cleaning operations. It's not that dissimilar from scale AI and automated driving, right? You have to label the data correctly in order to build good models off of it. And what we saw with Entropy, when you combine privacy protective machine learning with this scale custom classification, was an opportunity to completely unlock a huge range of new experiences because the fintech founders would no longer have to worry about cleaning what is objectively horribly organized raw data that comes off of transaction streams globally. Yeah. I just want to double click on that last point a little bit. So you mentioned like unlocking new experiences because of better data. Can you expand on just that new experiences piece? Well, a, a great example, either from our portfolio or other places is, so we have a portfolio company called CapChase. And CapChase is a revenue-based financing company. Now, if you're going to finance someone based on their SaaS revenue, you kind of need to know that it is, in fact, SaaS revenue. Now, what that means is it's not enough for CapChase to understand whether this is money in or money out. That's pretty simple, right? Plus, minus. (laughs) You can read that. Um, But it really matters. Is it recurring? What's the nature of the recurrence? You know, what is... and CapChase has a very sophisticated modeling for what kind of revenue leads to what kind of offers and what kinds of rates. And um, Entropy gives them the tools to categorize that revenue in a way that is scalable, but also customized to CapChase. So CapChase can make an offer that is pretty new in the market, which is SaaS-based financing, with very sophisticated understanding of revenue that meets their own internal models that they don't have to then constantly be recoding and uh, and making new rules. And so very sophisticated players will have thousands of rules in order to categorize if this, then that. Mm-hmm. And basically that entire rule set can be replaced with the end state labels and these very sophisticated machine learning models. Yeah, very helpful example to bring into life. And I, I'm, I might be making this up, but did CapChase just announce uh, another round? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, CapChase is, is doing very well. Yes. We're very excited about that. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. Also. Okay, uh, now maybe zooming out a little bit, and you hinted at this already, um, but would love to hear some of the trends that you're most excited about in fintech over the next, say, three to five years. Yeah, so this is one I'm just really curious about, which is, 
there are some really successful big brand companies that have captured consumers' attentions and captured their wallets, so to speak. You know, some of those in our portfolio, like Current and Albert, but a bunch of them are not. Dave and Chime, uh, Vero Bank, Robinhood. So one interesting question for me is, if you look at the demographics behind those companies, they're often um, providing sort of banking services to people who didn't have long-term affiliations with a bank before. So they're sort of capturing, they're becoming the first bank. But 10 years from now, the modal 35-year-old has more money and wants more financial services than the modal 25-year-old. So what happens to those banking brands which have been built to capture the attention of 25 to 30-year-olds when their customers are 35 to 40 or 45 to 50? And I think this is one of the most interesting questions for fintech because either these brands will kind of peter out and just end up on a treadmill or they will build themselves into the next generation of trusted banking brands Mm -hmm. and exactly how that plays out and what is the infrastructure to enable that is a really honestly exciting question for me and obviously i'm investing into infrastructure to make that easier But as those brands continue to diversify in terms of the services that they're offering, how they successfully go from single use case, you know, this is a fee-free, not going to cheat you debit card to becoming a banking supermarket or a financial services supermarket, I think is an amazing thing that I think we're going to have the opportunity to see play out. Yeah. A little bit of a strange question, but Right now, I have a finance folder on my phone, and I've got five apps in it. Yeah. Am I going to have more or less apps in that folder in, in five years? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the short answer is more. Mm-hmm. I think the longer answer is you're going to end up consolidating. So you're going to have more apps, but they're going to be your, your, the, the, whichever app you end up sort of capture, ends up capturing you or you end up capturing in terms of its use case. Mm-hmm. That's gonna that's gonna kind of naturally um, suck more of your wallet share. But look, if you think about my life as a forty one year old, right? Like I have a mortgage from one bank, I have a bank account in another bank, I have multiple credit cards from other banks. So, and then of course I have a similar finance apps folder, right? So, so there is a sense in which financial lives become complicated, and I think one of the most exciting opportunities for um, these consumer-facing finance brands is can they enable both a consistent consumer experience that is really excellent and what they become known for, but also the price benefits of marketplaces. And I think that's one of the real tensions, right? Because what people want to do is, oh, cross-sell gives me higher margin. Mm -hmm. And the, but cross-sell and higher margin leads to people to shop outside of your experience. And so I think there's a really interesting question that we get to watch um, to see how these companies um, navigate between the the push and pull of uh, offering the best price and offering the most seamless experience. Yeah. I appreciate you getting at the spirit of that question uh, instead of just (laughs) quite literally more or less apps. Um, More, no less. I don't know. (laughs) On the flip side of that, of the last conversation, um, I would love to hear... If there's any spaces in fintech where a company, if it comes to you, needs has a kind of a higher barrier to entry for you to invest in them, just you know, maybe a space that you think is crowded or you're a little bit bearish on. 
Yeah, look, I mean, we are we're nervous about spaces where there are a large number of winners that already seem to have emerged. So the barrier to entry to have a new consumer neobank is reasonably high for us. Mm-hmm. You know, and partly that's because at this point, you know, most of those um, consumer neobanks that succeeded succeeded with one great wedge product. But then the ones that have succeeded have also succeeded by rapidly expanding their feature set. Mm -hmm. So the number of, quote unquote, great wedge products that you could use to join the ranks, Mm -hmm. um, I think, is narrowed. And and they've got a lot of money and a lot of users. And so if they are well run, they should have a lot of opportunity to keep that going. So I think that's probably a space where we, you know, it's an exciting space. It's an exciting space in our portfolio. But to get the next one, you sort of have to you have to have a very credible case for how to um, you know what's wrong yeah. with 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 the market leaders that have already emerged. Yeah, and Current's a great example of a company that had that great wedge product and expanded rapidly afterwards. That's right. That's right. And you know they they're now launching crypto based rewards yep. and 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 crypto based savings. And so it's an example of and Stewart is a great product leader. Yep. He's constantly thinking about product, and so. It's not enough to just say, oh, well, current doesn't currently have, you know, feature X. Yeah. Because I can bet you that not just for current, but for any of these folks, they've got that on their roadmap. And the question is, are they good enough, strong enough teams? And will they become, will they stay the nimble companies that they've been? Yeah. Or, and, and I think there's, there's lots of opportunities for niche, oper- niche neobanks, but how big those can become, I don't know. And so it's a space we look at, but it's, I would say for us, it's probably a place where there's a higher barrier to entry mm-hmm. um, just to say, oh, well, I've got this yep. feature. I'm going to target the segment. Yeah. Um, Amaya, the last thing I wanted to do today was just ask you a few rapid fire questions. Excellent. Uh, hoping for answers in 10 seconds or less. Okay, I'll do my best. All right, let's do it. Uh, what is a fun fact about you that most people don't know? My first job out of college, I ran a Japanese immersion summer program. Wow. Very cool. I actually, I would like to hear more than 10 seconds on that. How would you get involved with that? <laughs> so when I was very young, I studied Japanese. And then there are a series of camps called Concordia Language Villages, which teach 14 different languages in the woods of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a camp counselor, a, camp, a camper, a camp counselor. And then right after college, um, my boss had been, was on maternity leave and they asked me to run camp. So I was running business meetings in Japanese at 21. Yep. Now, of course, I'm horrible at Japanese. I, uh, when I was very little, my family lived in, in Tokyo, okay. uh, but I, I remember no Japanese. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, my Duolingo streak has, has expired. I was trying to keep it up. Yeah. What's your favorite book? So I'll, I'll re- I've, I mostly read only old books. Okay. The book I would recommend right now is called The Economic Consequences of the Peace by John Maynard Keynes. Mm. And it's a great book to read in light of what's happening in Russia because it, Keynes was part of the group negotiating the, the settlement post-World War I. Mm-hmm. And he was so upset by the economic damage that we were imposing on the Germans that he basically quit and wrote mm-hmm. The Economic Consequences of the Peace. And it's near prophetic in terms of how he predicts the Treaty of Versailles leading to upset in the German populace and ultimately uh, more conflagration in World War II. So if you're just thinking about economic damage these days, that is a great book from just about 100 years ago. In a similar vein, uh, after the Ukraine crisis, or when the Ukraine crisis first started, I started reading All the Light We Cannot See. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
I fell in love with the book, but it's it's a good book to read right now to hear about what you just talked about, like the uh, the post World War One issues. Yeah. yeah. Um, next question, lighter note. Uh, what's the best pitch you ever heard from a startup? The best pitch. So I think the uh, I'll, I'll just go. You know, with Atomic, they really just came in and hit me with a exactly what I wanted, which is infrastructure, great team a good argument why those that had come before weren't doing it right and a really clear thesis on why now the time was right. Very cool. Uh, What was your biggest miss as an investor? So my favorite one here, when I first started at QED, I was very focused on reg tech. I was coming out of the government and we had a number of our portfolio companies using Alloy. And I remember getting the pitch around their Series A And they had a little, probably less than a million dollars in revenue, sort of a typical Series A. And they wanted 40 million pre. And I said, that is outrageous. That's an outrageous price. I could not possibly invest at at less than, you know, that revenue figure at that multiple just seems outrageous. And of course, they are, um, they have been a great company. And we already knew the team was great. We already knew the product was great. And so uh, that was definitely a, a, a big mistake. Now I understand why you are so close with Nate. <laughs> it's affordable. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, and last question. You can take a little bit longer on this one if you'd want. Yeah. What do you hope to see QED accomplish over the next 12 months? So the thing that we're most focused on is always just giving the best advice we can to our companies. And that, we think, is most important at moments of deep uncertainty. So at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we, you know, kind of, pulled everyone together. We did a bunch of webinars. We sort of tried to say, look, you can't know whether this is good or bad for you, but you should be acting as if it might be bad and might be good. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think there's a little bit of a moment that we're in right now with the public market sell-off and, you know, the absolute tragedy in Ukraine where our ability to coach our companies to navigate these uncertain times is the place where the prospect of what we hope to be, which is the best partners that you could have, not just the highest capital or, or the most dollars, really comes to fruition. So if I, if I look forward 12 months, I mean, I certainly hope that the world is a, is a saner um, and less tragic place. But in the meantime, I hope that we're able to help our companies navigate that uncertainty well. Yeah. Uh, well, hopefully in about 12 months time, you'll be back here for Cypher or something else. And, My pleasure, uh, yeah. We can uh, check back in on, on uh, how, how you guys did against those goals. But uh, I think that's probably a pretty good place to wrap it up. Um, absolute pleasure having you here today. Of course, my first uh, in-person recording, so that was fun too. Excellent. Thanks um, for having thanks us. Joining. Yeah. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium, and Twitter at Warden Fintech. There you will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I would also like to thank our editor, Raphael Austria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Anirudh Singh.